I would like to share with you, though, that in two weeks, not next week, it's Father's Day, but the week after, we're going to have a friend of ours, Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace is one of the uh, foremost New Testament scholars in the world today, and he's going to be here on Sunday, June, I think it's 28th, if that's a Sunday, and he will be sharing, Can We Trust the Bible? And uh, I think I told you a couple of weeks ago, I was studying for that, I was going to preach that message, but then I decided I'm reading all of Dan's stuff, and he's available. Uh, If he's available, I get him to come. And so I emailed him back and forth, and he said, I'm available, so he will be here. So I I encourage you, if you've got friends that are skeptics or maybe folks wrestling with this, two weeks from today, Dan Wallace will be right after Father's Day. Can you trust the Bible? And uh, he will do it on a uh, level that we can understand. So questions. If you're new to TBC, we do welcome you to Exciting Chaos. Uh, maybe you know or don't know we're in the middle of remodeling a lot of stuff, and uh, in the midst of all that, we're grateful for what God is doing, so uh, we ask you to be patient with us. We have adults meeting at Thornton Schools, all of our kids meeting in the Creekside building over there, and so we're scattered among a lot of places for the next several months, so thank you for your patience. Uh, I'm sure many of you heard that this past week had a CAT scan. The CAT scan revealed uh, some anomaly on my liver MRI tomorrow with results on Tuesday. So prayers appreciated as we continue this journey. Our family motto has been every day is a gift, and we believe that, and we're trusting God for that. And as I said two Sundays ago, he's good all the time, all the time God is good. And we're going to trust and press into him regardless of the outcome of those tests. So your prayers are appreciated, and uh, we'll let you know results uh, via website and Facebook this week so you can continue to pray on this journey God has us on. Someone asked me uh, this past week, Pastor Gary, why, why are we doing this series? And hopefully there are a lot of reasons, but uh, William Lane Craig is a New Testament scholar, and he says this is one of the reasons we should be doing a series like this. If Christians could be trained to provide solid evidence for what they believe and good answers to unbelievers' questions and objections, then the perception of Christians would slowly change. Christians would be seen as thoughtful people, to be taken seriously rather than as emotional fanatics or buffoons. The gospel would be a real alternative for people to embrace. Peter says it this way, be prepared to defend the gospel, to give an answer for that which has been placed in you. So we're doing this series so we can answer those questions. This morning we ask the most fundamental question that can be asked, does God exist? Let's pray. Father, as we open the word, we thank you for it. We thank you for speaking to us. And as we ask this question, God, Would you reveal yourself to some this day who may question that? Father, would you give us evidences that would help us support that as we deal with friends in our community? And Father, every day we have, uh, for the past four years, placed ourselves before you. We continue to do that. We ask for you to be the great God who demonstrates your goodness regardless of the outcome. In Christ's name, amen. The late Vince Lombardi was the Hall of Fame coach of the uh, Green Bay Packers, and uh, he had just a plethora of Hall of Famers that played for him when he was at Green Bay. Names like uh, Bart Starr, Paul Harning, Jim Taylor, who happened to play for LSU, uh, Jerry Kramer, uh, and Ray Nitschke, and the list goes on and on. Well, uh, Vince Lombardi did the same thing when he started every football practice in the fall. When they came together for the very first practice, he would reach into his bag and he said, men, we're going to start with the fundamentals. And he said, this is a football. (laughs) To all these experienced veteran football players, future Hall of Famers, he said, we've got to start with the fundamentals. This is a football. So this morning, I'll hold the football up to you. I, I say, this is a football. To me, the most fundamental question that anybody can ask is, does God exist? Because if God does not exist, then we're wasting our time. If he does exist, it changes everything. And so the most fundamental question in life, 
regardless of what you believe, is the answer to that question. Does God exist? Today, there are a lot of voices who cry out the opposite. He does not. He's just the figment of fertile imaginations. He's, he's just the invention of theologians and preachers like me. He is a psychological truck, uh, tr- uh, crutch for weak people, as the former Minnesota governor said one day. I ask you, does God exist? I, I, I believe the most important question we can answer in life is the answer to this question. Because if he does exist, and I'm convinced he does, by the way, I'm convinced he does. I'll tip my hand on the front. That he exists not for ourselves. If he exists, we live not for ourselves, but for his good and his glory. So so if God does exist, if there is a God, creator of our universe and everything that there is, then it's a game changer for everything in life. Because if there is a God, we exist really for his glory and for his good. So you have a friend who's a skeptic and he walks up to you or she walks up to you and says, how do you know God exists? How are you going to answer that question? I mean, if I walked up to you and said, hey, I I really don't believe God exists. I want you to tell me how you know that. How would you answer that question? See, there are voices today, it's called new atheism. And some of those voices are very loud voices. They speak and they write often. And uh, these are some of those voices. Uh, Richard, uh, there we go. I should have pictures of these guys. Annette, would you pop the one up with their pictures? I, I don't know where it went to before we get to that quote. So if you go back, here we go. So if you look at these pictures, these are some of the loud voices. These are the, the strongest voices of new atheism. Stephen Hawking, you're well aware of him, brilliant physicist, one of the brightest men in the world, writes about there is no God. Richard Dawkins does the same thing. Christopher Hitchens did write, but uh, he passed away a few couple of years ago, and uh, I guarantee you he met God. So uh, even though he says there is no God. Over this are proponents who would stand opposite of these men. Brilliant scientists on my left, brilliant men on the right. Francis Collins, who knows that name? Francis Collins, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project. MD, PhD, a devout atheist who came to know God and Christ. And his book is called The Language of God. If you want to read about this from a scientific perspective and how his journey led him to faith, it's quite a story. One of the brightest minds of our day and age, Francis Collins, the head of all that, uh, became a firm believer in Jesus after looking at the human body and also through answering the questions of patience, what happens next? After that is J.P. Moreland. J.P. Moreland was two years ahead of me at Dallas Seminary. It means he's two years older than me, but he looks about 10 years older than me. (laughs) Then he's a philosopher, teacher out on the West Coast, and there's William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a theologian philosopher as well, has written much on this, and is one of the leading uh, proponents of the existence of God this day. Loud voices on both sides. What do they say? What do these voices say? Well, the voices of new atheism say things like this. This is Dawkins. Faith is the great cop-out. It's the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. So Dawkins says, really, if you believe that there is a God, it's just a demonstration that you're not willing to think that you're not willing to look at that which is evident. Stephen Hawking says this, I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe. No one directs our faith. This leads me to a profound realization that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. No afterlife, no God, no nothing. It just ends when we die and that's it. And then uh, Hitchens said this, and he he was really just a, a crass man. Brilliant man, but a crass man. He said, faith is a surrender of the mind. It's a surrender of reasons. It's a surrender of the only thing that makes us different from animals. 
It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discord that and put all our trust, our faith in someone or something. That is sinister to me. Of all the supposed virtues, faith is the most overrated. And he wrote a book called God is Not Great. Hitchens. Um, Hawking said this, one can't prove that God doesn't exist. At least he admits that. One can't prove that God doesn't exist, but science makes God unnecessary. Think about that for a second. Because we have science and we understand science, God's unnecessary. Versus Francis Collins, who came to faith in Christ, believing there's a God after being a devout atheist, who says this, science is simply mankind trying to understand the greatness of God's design. The language of God, Francis Collins, a scientist, subtitled a scientist, evidence for belief in God. Does God exist? How do you answer that question? Your friends, many of you are scientists, many of you are medical, and a number of us are, are professors or teachers, and a number of you are, are, are just thinkers, and you're, you're saying, how do I know God exists? What are the arguments for the existence of God? We can't go in a laboratory and prove God exists, but we can look at the evidences that surround us. Well, throughout history, there are four or five arguments that theologians and philosophers use to show the existence of God, to demonstrate the existence of God, to give evidence for the existence of God, and that's what we're going to look at today. The bulletin you have in your hand has an outline on it. You'll see five blanks there. We're going to fill in those blanks together. The first is the cosmological argument. Cosmos means world, so it's the cosmological argument, the argument of the world, the argument of the universe. Simply stated, this line of reasoning argues that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Let me state that again. Think about it. Everything that begins to exist, something comes into existence, it has a cause. Something caused it to begin to exist. So you look at our cosmos, you look at our world, the universe, it began to exist. If it began to exist, it's a cause, and therefore something or someone brought that into existence. Even scientists in our day and age are talking about, many of them universally, not universally, but many of them believe in the Big Bang Theory. And by the way, the Big Bang Theory is not just a sitcom uh, in, in Southern California with the, or California with young scientists. Uh, the Big Bang Theory is that basically uh, it's the explanation of how the universe began. At its simplest, it talks about the universe starting in a small singularity, then inflating over the next 13.8 billion years to the cosmos that we have today. So track with me. Either the cosmos that we live in, the universe we live in, this is the cosmological argument, first cause, that the universe has a beginning because it has a beginning, something or someone caused that. So either you believe that or you believe that man and the universe are self-created. Somehow, some way in the past, everything we see and everything we experience is self-created. Or you believe that there is something or someone who pre-existed and brought about the universe. And that someone I submit to you is the God of the universe. The scriptures are very clear about that, and we use the scriptures as our support as well. We recognize we're giving you evidences, but the reality of the scriptures speak to this as well. Uh, in, the, in the first verse of the Bible, there's not an argument about the existence of God. There's an assumption of the existence of God, and you can read it with me. Let's read this verse together. You all know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no explanation of the existence of God. It's an assumption that God exists, and because of that, it says he is the creator. He created ex nihilo, ex nihilo, or or two Latin words, ex is, 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 is um, without anything, basically out of nothing. That's the concept, out of nothing. So out of nothingness, God created the universe because he was the preexistent one. 
If there, is a, if there is an effect, there has to be a cause. Something brought it about. So what existed before time, before space, before the universe, the argument is if something has a beginning, something caused it. And that's something I submit to you is the God of the universe. The scriptures speak to this in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, it says, but God made the earth by his power. God founded the world by his wisdom. God stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When God thunders, the waters and the heavens roar. When God makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth, he sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from its storehouses. And so we go to the scriptures and we see not only there are evidences in the world around us in the first cause argument, but the scriptures itself address the topic. And then perhaps in one of those poignant portions of God's word addressed to the general revelation that we see around us, Paul writes these words in Romans chapter one, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, these are the attributes of God, what he does, two things, his eternal power and divine nature. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God is not in the business of concealing himself. God is in the business of revealing himself. Let me say that again. God is not trying to conceal himself. God is seeking to reveal himself. And Paul says, being understood from what has been made, people without excuse. One of the questions that we're going to address later on in this series is what happens to those who never hear? What happens? It used to be the heathen in Africa. Well, Africa is more evangelized than uh, most, most continents now. So what happens to those that don't hear? Paul addresses that question. They're without excuse because God has revealed himself through his internal power and his divine nature. So the first line of reasoning, the first argument, if you will, is that God is the one who is the first cause. He has brought it about. He pre-exists. And because the universe, because the cosmos have a beginning. So back up with me for a second. What if there is no God? If there is no God, something not only brought the universe into existence, but brought life into existence. Think about that. Somehow from deadness, life began. I mean, if there's no God, and there's a cosmic explosion in the past, some way, somehow, those inanimate, lifeless particles became life, if there's no God. One author writes that I read, I've been reading my eyes or eye out for the last uh, week on this topic, and the last month, actually. And uh, Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell, have written a book on the evidences of the faith. It's a good book. If you want to pick up a book, just Google up McDowell's, and it'll come up, Sean and Josh McDowell. And they write, one day a group of scientists got together and decided they, did, they no, no, no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell God. So the scientists walked up to God and said, God, we've decided since we no longer need you, uh, we're very grateful for all you've done in the past, but now we can clone people and do many miraculous things. So you can, you can we don't need you anymore. God patiently listened to the scientists and kind, was very kind to him. And after he's finished talking, uh, God said, very well, let's just do one thing. But let's just have one little basic thing that we would do. Let's create a man. And the scientist said, okay, great. And God said, but we're going to do it the way I did it with Adam back in the day. The scientist said, sure, no problem. He bit down, grabbed a handful of dirt, and started to walk to his laboratory. And God said, no, 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 no. You go make your own dirt. <laughs> so, you know, we look at these things and we recognize that if there is no God, then everything around us 
was brought into being by time and chance. That's what happened. Because there is an effect, a beginning of our universe, there must have been a cause. And I submit to you that cause is the God of the universe. The second argument is the teleological argument. Teleological. Teleological. I can't say it. The argument about design. I said it perfectly last hour about ten times. This argument says the purpose, order, design we observe in the universe and the world around us gives us evidence of a designer. I mean, when you look at our universe, you see purpose, you see order, you see design. And when you see purpose, order, and design, it it tells us that there's a designer, that there is a creator, that there's an orderer. The complexity of the laws of nature, the human body, the universe, the man, a designer. If you look through a microscope, if you look through a telescope, you see design, you see purpose, and you see order. If you look at the cell, or if you look at the galaxy, you see purpose, you see order, and you see design. One of the authors that I read this week says this. He said, uh, every time you see a shirt, a dress, or a coat, you know that there was a creator. Every time you see a watch, a car, or a house, you know there was a designer. Every time you see a piece of art, if it's a painting, a sculpture, or a movie, you know there's an artist. Every time you see order, maybe flowers in a garden, channels on a TV, rows of corn in a field, or maybe stuff in my closet I added to my notes here, you know there's an orderer. When you look around the universe, what do you see? You see creation, design, art, and order. If every other thing has a creator, designer, and artist, and order behind it, don't you think that the universe has a creator, a designer, an artist, and an order around it? I mean, it's a simple argument, but it's a profound argument. When you look at everything that exists and everything around us, you see order, you see purpose, you see creation, and you see design. Probably the most complex world is our body. Our body. Many of you are medical. You know that. I mean, just think about the body that God's got, the galaxy he's placed us in. You realize if if our globe was tilted just another few degrees, we would not be here. You realize if our distance from the sun was just a little different, we would not be here. You recognize that if you look at the laws of nature and the things that happen around us, that if we're not aware of those things, we would not be here. There's design, there's order, there's purpose. Just the human body. So I was looking for videos to, to support these points. I ran across a video by uh, Creation, Institute, Re- Creation Research Institute. Just about the human body. Watch this for a couple of seconds, then we'll move on. This series takes us on a journey through the most complex and miraculous creations on earth, us. Your body's an incredible work of engineering. Who could understand all of this except one who put it all together to begin with? It is simply amazing. Human engineers can only dream of coming up with something where a person could live inside another person, have everything change in one single breath. From almost the moment of birth, our visual system begins processing data from the world around us. Really just a way that God has designed our bodies If you wanted to get an eye to operate better than it does now, you'd have to relocate to an alternate universe. 
Our Creator has given all of us, through His design, the ability to do amazing things with our hands. This is something that's uniquely human. We have hands that are a gift from the Lord that connect us to everybody around us, and that's a tremendous privilege. The human body is the great work of the Creator. You and I possess the most efficient, the most complex, and the most wonderful work that an omnipotent and omniscient designer could make. Now, I just stand in awe. The eye, the foot, the hand. Look at your hands for a second. Just put your hands right in front of you. Sir Isaac Newton said this. He said, take away every other argument and the fact of the human thumb would make me believe in the existence of God. Just the thumb. So take a look at that. This is God's imprint of himself. This is his evidence to you. And then you walk out into the universe and you take a look at everything that's there. You go out tonight on a story night or you, you go to Colorado and look at the Rockies. Or you go to the ocean and, and look at the sea. And uh, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, pour forth speech and night after night, reveal knowledge. Nature is God's workshop. The sky is his resume. The universe is his calling card. Teddy Roosevelt had a dear friend, William Beebe, and when they would be traveling, they would often go out at night and they would pick out the lower left-hand corner of Pegasus and they would recite the following little poem. This is the spiral galaxy Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It's 750,000 light miles away. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would pause and he'd look at Bibi and said, I think we both feel small enough. Let's go to bed. The greatness of our God and the universe he's created. Everywhere we look, James Irwin was an astronaut. He was asked the question, when you were in space, did you see God? He said, when I was in space, all I saw was God. John Glenn, one of his, when his first uh, space expedition, he said, looking at the earth from this vantage point, looking at this kind of creation and not to believe in God is impossible. To see the earth laid out like it was only strengthened my beliefs in the Almighty. When the first Russian cosmonaut, Yuri, whatever his name was, went into space, uh, I don't have it in front of me. It was Yuri somebody, I remember that. But uh, when he came back, he made the statements quoted throughout the Soviet Union, Moscow. He said he, he was in the heavens, looked for God, never saw him. That next Sunday in the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Wally Amos Criswell took the pulpit and uh, he quoted that. He said, I guarantee you, though, if he'd taken off his spacesuit and stepped out of that capsule, he'd have seen God real quickly. <laughs> Here's the reality, my friends. When you look at the cosmological argument, the argument of first cause, what we see is this place had a beginning. Therefore, it was created by someone. And when you look at the order, the design, the purpose, and everything that exists around us, when you look at the human body, your hands, your eye, your feet, the circular, whatever it is, you pick the body part. You recognize that someone somehow created this. 
Wherever there's creation, there's a, there, there's a creator. Where there's an order, there's an order. Where there was a design, there's a designer. And, and whenever there's purpose, there's one who made that purpose. The, the next argument is called the anthropological argument. That's the argument of moral law. Basically, that says, since man is moral, intelligent, and a living being, he cannot be explained apart from a moral, intelligent, and living creator. And one of the phenomenons of cultures is every human culture has moral law. There's some type of morality in every single culture that's ever existed. Now, there's variety within that. There are different moral practices and what's considered moral, but the reality of it is every culture that's ever existed. And so the argument goes, if there is moral law, if there is morality, then there must be one who created this morality. There must be one who created man in this way. There's a higher source, and that source is namely God. He exists because, or we know his existence because of that. There's an objective, universal, constant standard of truth and morality which points to a personal and moral God. And so if God exists, if he does exist, because he is truth, we speak truth. Because he is loving, we act loving. Because kind, we act kindly. And we go on about each of his character traits. But there are those who would say, well, he is not really, morality can come from a conscience and every person has that. I like what C.S. Lewis says, and this is Francis Collins quoting C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says it well, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry, well, there's such a thing as food. A a duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. Man feels sexual desires, well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation I was made for another world. I mean, if these things exist, we're creating us to exist. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 11, it says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. God has made us with a void, with a, with a vacuum that seeks after him. And he goes on and he says, could it be that this longing for the sacred, this universal puzzling aspect of human experience may not be wish fulfillment, but rather a pointer towards something beyond us? Why do we have a God-shaped vacuum in our hearts and minds unless it's meant to be filled? C.S. Lewis' argument is the only way you can know something is evil is if you have good next to it, and good comes from God. And he makes that argument here. So you find that as a, uh, another argument. Then there's the argument of personal experience. The argument of personal experience. You have the cosmological argument, teleological argument, the anthropological argument, which is the moral law argument. You have the argument of personal experience, personal experience. Josh McDowell, in this particular book, was asked by a friend, uh, the one that I mentioned earlier, he's asked by a friend, you talk about God and how he's changed your life. Josh, give me some specifics. He said, after I gave him 30 minutes of specifics, he said, okay, enough already, okay, enough already. See, one of the, one of the evidences for the fact that there is a God is a changed life to those of us that have faith in Christ. In fact, uh, they say it this way in their book, God, if you have a personal encounter with the creator, God, through Jesus Christ, you know he's real. The evidence of a personal experience with God cannot necessarily be sufficient proof to others, but it can be one of the many convincing arguments to the one who knows God personally. If there's not a God, I spent all day Friday in my office studying the Word and talking to myself. That's what happened. I mean, since we got word about this, uh, you know, potential um, metastasis on the liver, uh, I've been talking to God a lot. But if there's no God, I've been talking to myself. See, one of the arguments for the existence of God is our own personal experience. Let me remind you, more people are loved in the kingdom than argued into the kingdom. And one of the ways to love somebody in the kingdom is just to share what Jesus has done for you. It's one of the things to do. 
You recognize Jesus has done this great work. I wrote down notes, because I know Christ. The first, you know, first thing that happened in my life, my language cleaned up overnight. When I started walking with Christ as a, as a freshman at LSU, um, my words cleaned up overnight. I went to play racquetball the next day. A word came out of my mouth that I had been using frequently. And I was so convicted about that, it stopped right there. My wife can tell you over the 40 years of our marriage and two years of dating, words like that just don't come from my mouth. God cleaned up my speech overnight. What else has he changed in my life? He's changed the way I love my bride, the way I parented my kids, the way I seek to impact my grandkids, the way I spend my time, the way I spend my money. Uh, some, some people would say, well, that's just a psychological experience. And I tell you, it's a radical transformation. When our hearts are changed, we respond differently. And one of the greatest arguments of the existence of God is your personal experience with the Creator through Jesus Christ, His Son. And it's good to have these evidences down and to be able to explain that to the skeptic. But if you sit with Gary DeSalvo for any length of time, he's going to say, share with me your story. And it's because the power of story. And when you know Christ as Savior, it may not be sufficient proof to others of the existence of God, but it's a confirmation to you that God does exist. And so if you don't have a personal story, maybe you don't know Christ yet, and I would submit to you that that's the most important decision you could make on this day. And the final argument would be the person of Jesus himself. Jesus claims to be the father's doppelganger. We looked at that last summer. A doppelganger is a lookalike. In John 14, 9, he says, he who has seen me has what? Seen the father. And he's saying that uh, I and the father are one, John chapter 10. And so what Jesus is saying is, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, he claimed to be the manifestation of God, Hebrews chapter 1, the radiance of God. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, he's God in the flesh, therefore God must exist. So, so you back that logic up. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, he's a visible manifestation of, manifestation of God, therefore God must exist. Let me ask you a question. You ever have that moment? when you wonder if all this is true. Have you had that moment? I mean, when you kind of scratched your head or were deep in thought and saying, you know, maybe this is something I believe because my parents told me. Maybe it's something I believe because Pastor Gary told me. Maybe it's something I believe because life goes a lot better when you believe and trust in God. Even that moment you wonder, does God really exist? I had that moment. I, I can recall it like it was yesterday. I'd been at TVC for two or three years. I'd been through four years of graduate school. Had been pastoring, preaching, studying the Word, studying the Word for four years before that. So I'm 10 years into this. It's the first time that I'm called to go to the hospital where I know the person who's dying is going to be in glory or going to die and then something's going to happen. And I'm going to walk in and his name was Dusty. I'll never forget. He was a young man with, uh, with a bad cancer died at age 29. And I remember sitting in my car, I had a Volkswagen rabbit. Remember that babe? That, I didn't get in that rabbit. I put that rabbit on. It was so small. <laughs> this body is not built for a Volkswagen rabbit. I'm going to tell you that. But I can remember being in the parking lot at Scott. I can tell you where I was parked. I can tell you what I had on. I can tell you it was hot. I can tell you the air conditioner was on. And my thought process went this way. God, I'm going to walk into the room and talk to this young man, and I'm going to tell him he's going to be in your presence in a matter of hours. God, is this true? Is it true? 
I got to know that. And you would think, gosh, Gary, after all that time and all that study and all that, well, I had a moment where I needed to know that. And so here's how my reasoning went. And I've shared this before. I sat in that Volkswagen Rabbit. And I went back and I thought, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not resurrected, our faith is in vain. And I started thinking of the evidences of the resurrection. And I looked at those, thought of the evidences through my mind. I thought about the seal that was broken, the gourd that disappeared, the disciples had found an empty tomb, a Christ who was seen by hundreds. And I started going through those evidences. And the Spirit of God touched my heart in a deep place and said, of course it's true. Because Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, for some of you, it's the cosmological arm. You see the cosmos, you believe in God. For some of you, it's a theological argument. You see design, order, purpose, and you, you know there's a God. For some of you, it's moral law. You see justice and you see courage and say, there's got to be a God who brought that about. For some of you, it's your own personal experience. You, you know that your life has been dramatically changed. And it wasn't some psychological event that, that happened, but the, the God of the universe invaded your life through the person of Jesus Christ. And for me, it was the argument of Jesus. Seeing who Jesus was and being reminded of that at that moment. And it's who he claimed to be, a God in the flesh, therefore there has to be a God. And so, as we navigate life, if there is a God, everything changes. In the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel is in bondage, they're getting ready to leave, and this is just a simple case study, simple case study. Moses has come before Pharaoh, and uh, he's pleading for his people. So I say, if God exists, he's compassionate, cry out to him. It says in Exodus chapter 3, he heard the cries of his people, cry out to him. Cry out to him. We're crying out to God all the time, aren't we? I'm crying out to God. You're crying out to God. If God exists, he is omnipresent. He says, I will be with you. One of the promises, Bev and I taught that last week to our young adults, all you guys sitting back there, great week, weekend with you guys. We loved it last weekend. God is omnipresent. He is with you. Uh, trust him. Uh, God is eternal. He's always existed. He says, I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3, he says, I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. That means I have always existed and I always will exist. He is the one who's created this cosmos. So submit to him. God is sovereign. Obey him. He's in charge of everything. He turns everything in the natural world upside down through the plagues because he's sovereign over everything that he has created. And finally, he is faithful. Accept them. He faithfully takes the nation of Israel out of bondage and places them in a promised land. Not only does God exist, but he's clearly revealed himself to us. Everywhere you look, if you look at your hands, you look at your feet, you look at the stars, you look at the sky, you look at the mountains, you look at the sea, I pray you see God. Understand his grandeur and kneel at his glory. The cosmos is an amazing thing. Worship team, would you guys join me? The cosmos is an interesting thing. As I study this and a lot of different things, I'm fascinated with our galaxies and the universe, and I'm no expert on this. I took an astronomy course at LSU, so that means I don't know anything. (laughs) But, But here's the reality. There are a lot of bright people who know a lot about the greatness of God and the goodness of God. One of those is a guy named Louis Giglio. Does that name ring a bell to you? Louis Giglio, passion, just a great man of God, great preacher. And he does a deal on the vastness of the universe to show the evidences of the existence of God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to watch Louis Giglio, then we're going to sing about our great God together. And uh, while we're singing, Bev and I will be in the back. You want to pray about anything? Come and pray with us. Watch Louis Giglio.
Pastor. That's awesome. Yeah. But we are here tonight to worship. This is an amazing thought. A God who is indescribable. You say, well, how do you know that? All you have to do is walk outside on a dark night and look up into the sky. And you will know when you look up that this God we're worshiping tonight is beyond our wildest dream. The scripture says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth. We live in a little subdivision in the universe called the Milky Way Galaxy. In case you didn't know, that's where you live. Some of you are thinking you live in Shady Grove. No, you're living in the Milky Way Galaxy. That's your subdivision in the universe, a very big universe that we have to use something called a light year to get around in. You say, well, what's a light year? Well, that's how fast light travels in one year. And we know it's flying 186,000 miles a second. So if light goes 186,000 miles a second for a whole year, it goes 5.88 trillion miles in a year. And that's the measurement, or one of the main measurements we use to get around in the universe that God has created. That's how big it is. The foot, not going to help you in God's universe. The yard, of no value to you whatsoever in God's universe. The mile, insignificant. The kilometer, Matt, uh, not going to help you uh, getting around in God's universe. We have to use a ruler that is 5.88 trillion miles long to measure things in God's universe. And our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy, just came into being. It, cons- it's con- it consists of billions of stars, just our subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. Not hundreds, not millions, not hundreds of millions, billions of stars in our home subdivision, the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say that there are hundreds of billions of other subdivisions and galaxies in the known universe. This shot is where we live. It's a little snapshot of the Milky Way galaxy. If you zoom into this star-forming region, see something pretty amazing. This particular shot is a close-up of a star-forming region in our subdivision taken by a friend of ours named Dr. David Block, who's an astronomer down at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we were down there a few months ago, and he was telling us that if we were to count the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, one star per second... So if we just started with any one of these, I don't know which one you want to pick. Um, let's just start with this one right here. And we, because I can reach it. And we start one, two, three, four, five. That looks like one, but I'm close enough to see it's two that are close together. Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Let's go back over here. 12. You're like, oh, please don't count them all. If we counted all the stars in our subdivision, one per second, it would take 2,500 years just to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And God says about himself, you, you, you want to know how the universe is telling us that God is big? Through the prophet Isaiah, he says, to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes to the heavens. Who created all of these. And then he answers for himself. The one who leads forth the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Our great God. Amen. Yeah. Let's stand together. Let's stand together and worship our great God.